like to encourage all of you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. As you know, we are continuing in our verse-by-verse exposition of Paul's letter to the Colossians. We began last Lord's Day to consider the latter part of Colossians chapter 2, specifically in verses 16 to 23. This, by the way, completes this section of the first two chapters of this wonderful epistle. And it also completes what is commonly called the theological section of Paul's letter. If you have studied any of Paul's epistles to any degree, you know that it was his habit to first give a reason for their life in Christ, a theology, a doctrinal section, usually taking several chapters and It is the same here in his letter to the Colossians. The first two chapters are virtually all theological. And as you turn to chapter 3 and begin in verse 1, which we will do next time, it begins the very devotional, or what I like to call the ethical section of Paul's epistle to the Colossians. We are going to end our theological section today by the exposition of this final section of Colossians 2, and we've entitled last Lord's Day message and this, Breaking the Bondage of Legalism. Breaking the Bondage of Legalism. You follow along as I read in verses 16 to 23. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Now, as we have discovered the legalism to which Paul is referring here, I said to you last time, and we'll continue this morning, to discover the ways in which that legalistic bondage to life is broken. I mentioned to you last time that there are three of them that Paul gives us here in this text. We looked at the first one last time, and by way of a short review, we'll go over it again. He says that the first way to break the bondage of legalism in life is this. Don't judge others and resist the judgment of others unless God's Word calls you to do so. Now, I said to you last time that when Paul talks about legalism, he means the following. Legalism is a man-made set of rules, a man-made set of regulations, of principles, that man then adds to the commandments of God in order to be right with God or to attempt to be pleasing to God. That's legalism. And Paul says that if you are to break the bondage of such man-made legalism, you must know this. You cannot judge others, and you must resist the judgment of others about your life unless God's Word explicitly tells you to do so. That is, judge others or accept the judgment of others. And then Paul, by giving us this warning, as he does the other two that we'll look for this morning, gives us examples and then an answer to that warning. 
He gives us the example in two ways in verse 16. He says, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink. And you know last time we talked about that and we said that there are some people who legalistically hold professing believers in Christ accountable to what they put in their mouth or to what they drink in terms of a liquid. And they say that there are some things that you must stay away from and there are other things that you should imbibe if you're going to be either right with God or fully pleasing to God. And we know that Paul has been endeavoring to say in these first two chapters that cannot be so. For Christ and Christ alone is our sufficiency. He is our full atonement. In him we are complete, we are full. We don't need to add Christ plus food or drink in order to be right with God or to be pleasing to God. We looked at that at great detail last time. And then he also gives us an example in verse 16 when he says, you should not judge others and you should resist the judgment of others if they come to you and say that you must respect a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day as though by keeping a holy day or a holiday that that makes you inherently more spiritual than any other day. Paul clearly is saying here that this holy day legalism has passed. They had festivals, those days in which they were to celebrate the goodness of God. They had a new moon day, that was the first day of a month, where they would sacrifice on behalf of their sins to God. And they would celebrate the Sabbath, that is the seventh day of the sixth, seventh day of the week for which they would then on that Saturday worship God alone and rest. Paul is coming along now and he's saying that those things cannot inherently add to your spiritual life, your spiritual maturity. They cannot make you a Christian and they cannot make you more of a Christian. And he says the answer is in verse 17. These things are a mere shadow. They are pointing to the Messiah. Now that the Messiah has come, there is no need to be involved with the shadows anymore. The substance belongs to Christ. The warning, you must not judge as a Christian other believers, other professing believers, based upon what they put in their mouth or drink, or you cannot judge others based upon a day that they may count as holy as over against another day. We must not do those things because Christ in his word, does not tell us to do so. In fact, he tells us the opposite. Through Paul in Romans 14, he clearly tells us that there are some days which some see as more holy than others. That's not an issue. They want to worship on those days, let them do so. They, however, cannot condemn other Christians who don't choose to worship on those days because those days are not inherently more spiritual than other days. Every day is a day that's given to the Lord. Christians historically have worshipped the Lord at least from the New Testament on, on Sundays, the first day of the week, because that was the day that our Lord Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. And the early church, by the New Testament principles themselves, worshipped the Lord on the first day of the week, or what was commonly called the Lord's Day. And because of that, we then worship on this day. But it's not this day that we hold as more sacred than any other day. That is past because the substance for us is Christ, and we can worship Christ on any day of the week. That's what Paul is saying with this first way to break the bondage of legalism. Now this morning, we are given two more. Two more. Let's look at the second one. Again, it is in the form of a warning with examples and then an answer. Here is the warning. The warning is contained for us in verse 18. He says, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize, and then he gives the examples. By delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. And then he gives us the answer to his own warning. They're not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. Now let's look first of all at the warning. The warning, we could say, is in the form of this principle, just like the first. Don't allow others 
to condemn your spirituality based on unbiblical experiences. That's the principle. The first principle, don't judge others and, re and resist the judgment of others unless God's Word calls you to do so. Secondly, don't allow others to condemn your spirituality based on unbiblical principles. That is the warning that Paul gives us here in verse 18. He says, let no one keep defrauding you of your pride. What does he mean by that? Well, what he's saying is that there are going to be people in the church, just like in the church in Colossae here, who are going to come to you and they are going to attempt to defraud you or deprive you or probably what this word most likely means, condemn you. They're going to say, unless you are involved in these practices, Christ plus these things, then you are not all that you need to be for Christ. You're not going to be as spiritually mature as you need to be. You need to be involved in these things so that your relationship to Jesus Christ can be at that optimum level. That's very interesting, that word defraud there, keep defrauding you of your prize. It's brevuo, and it really means to act as an umpire in giving someone a prize. And that's why it's translated in the New American Standard, keep defrauding you of your prize. You're sort of an umpire. You're in charge. And you have a prize to give someone. And in this case, it's the prize of Christ. And you are saying to that person, if you're condemning them by not doing such and such a thing, you're saying to them, you cannot have the prize, the prize of Christ, fully and completely and most optimally unless you are involved in these other things. Now that's a very, very intimidating thing to do to someone else. It really means that you are depriving or saying that this person is deprived or disqualified from the greatest kind of service and focus and ministry to Jesus Christ unless they're involved in Christ plus something else. You're really condemning them. You're judging them. Paul is warning his fellow believers that there are going to be those among them who are actually questioning, judging, condemning their Christianity because of some things these Colossian believers are not doing. Now that's the warning. What are they not doing? Here are the examples. Look at verse 18 again. Three of them are listed here. The first is that what they're not doing is that they are not delighting in self-abasement. Now that is a phrase that we don't often talk about in the church. It's something that we don't often see or we don't think we see. What does it mean? Well, these errorists, these false teachers, they're coming along to the Colossi church and they're saying, in addition to your relationship with Christ, you need to be involved in the mortifying or denying of your body as a way to show God how really committed you are. Self-abasement is simply a term that talks about flagellating your body, mortifying your body, hurting your body, maybe even physically cutting your body, uh, depriving your body. Now, as best we can tell, because it is very difficult to sort of try to reconstruct precisely what Paul is referring to here, obviously in Colossae itself, during the time in which he wrote, they would fully understand what he was talking about because it would have been a common issue of the day would have been a common teaching. Uh, those days have long passed from us, and so we don't know precisely, but what we think is this. As best we can tell, what Paul is really saying is that the advocates of this self-abasement philosophy would be involved in a number of fasting, maybe even fasting including very, very rigorous bodily exercise, maybe even including severely treating the body, because he says there in verse 23 self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. Now, we don't know exactly what this is, but we could assume that they were doing all kinds of things physically to their body, depriving themselves, doing all that they can to show God how really committed they are, focusing in on their relationship with God. God, I'm going to show you how serious I am about this Christian life because I'm going to do things against my body, and that's going to show you that the physical means nothing to me, that the spiritual to me is everything. In fact, even at this time, during the time that Paul wrote, there was another teaching going around that said all matter was evil, that the spiritual dimension was all good and the physical dimension 
including the biological slash physical issues of life, were inherently evil. And if that was playing a part in their teaching, what they were really saying was, since all matter is evil, including this physical body, I'm going to do everything I can to destroy this body, to deprive this body, because I want to show you how spiritually motivated I can be. I don't have to eat, I don't have to drink, or I'll only eat certain foods and drink certain things, and I'll even do some things to my body, severely treating it to show you, God, how really, really earnest I am in my focus and devotion to you. That was a very common practice. Frankly, even within Judaism and even within the pagan religions of the time, uh, they would desperately want to be humble, they would want to be contrite, they would treat their bodies in such a way that they believed that God, or the gods, if it was pagan religions, were going to be pleased. And that's really what he's talking about. In fact, it's very interesting. If you do some reading about the background and the history in Colossae, including some of these pagan practices, they believed that there were a group of angels, or if not angels, some intermediary beings, who would be the go-between between God himself, or the gods, and human beings. And what they would do was they would severely treat their bodies in an effort to show these intermediaries how forceful and how committed and how focused they were in their relationship with God, and they would say, in a sense, if you are involved in the worship of God, these intermediary beings, if you are able to go into the very presence of God and worship Him, then we want to go with you. And in order for us to go with you, since you do not have a physical body, we must destroy our physical body, or at least deprive it, so that we can be shared or grouped with you, and we can then go to God like you and be able to worship with you the God or God. You say, it sounds very strange. Well, it's not very strange. In fact, there are teachings just like that even today. There are examples like that even today. In fact, what he says next is this. Here's the second example he gives. He says the delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels. Now, that's very common today, isn't it? I've mentioned to you before, all kinds of books are being written today about angels, about angels ministering to people, about angels protecting people, about angels that we need to pray to and pray for, and all kinds of teaching, frankly, not from the Bible, but from people's human experiences about angels themselves. It's not very far-fetched at all. And so Paul comes along and says, hey, there are going to be some people who also come to you, Colossians, and they're going to say, you need Christ plus the severe treatment of your body to show these intermediary beings, these angelic spirits, these demonic powers, these principalities, how serious you are, and when you go to them, you'll be able to worship with them in the very throne room of the gods. In fact, the worship of the angels, that phrase there, probably should better be translated in a more objective sense instead of the worship of the angels. It's probably better translated the angels worship implied of God. These people wanted to be involved in and with these angels, these angelic beings, in their worship of God or the gods. And so they would severely treat their bodies in order to bring that to pass. And then he gives a third example. He says, taking his stand on visions he has seen. And what you might assume or conclude from this is that once they've had such an experience, then they come back to earth, as it were, and they say, hey, I've had a tremendous experience. I have actually been in the throne room of God or the gods. I have so treated my body. I've become so humble. I've become so focused that I was actually worshiping with the angels, and now I've come back to tell you about it. My mind was caught away. My body was a thing of the past. My, my spiritual life, my spirituality was catapulted into the heavenlies, and I had this rich, divine communion with the Creator. And Colossians, if you really want to have that same kind of reverence, that same kind of ministry, that same kind of service, that same kind of worship, then you ought to be worshiping in this same way, and you ought to be doing this to your body. You ought to be worshiping alongside the angels like this, Boy, it is something that you wouldn't believe. And, as I said, there would be all kinds 
of examples that you could give in our own day for these kinds of things. But Paul says, don't believe it. Don't believe it for one minute. It isn't true. In fact, he says at the end of verse 18, I'll give you the answer. I'll give you the answer. They are inflated without cause by their fleshly mind. And you know what they're not doing? They're not holding fast to the head. That's Christ. He's the head of the church. And they're not holding fast to Christ, the head, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments and grows with a growth which is from God. Paul says, I'll tell you what they're doing. What they're doing is trying to tell you that in order for you to really be right with God, to be pleasing to God, you need all of this extra stuff and it isn't so. These are errorists. These are false teachers. Don't believe them. I'm warning you. The answer is they are inflated because of their fleshly mind. They are puffed up with knowledge. They think they have the data, but they don't. It's really their own meanderings. It's really their own human wisdom. Don't believe it for one minute. If you believe that, it is going to detract you from your relationship and purity and simplicity in your devotion to Christ. Don't believe it. And if Paul were here today, he'd be saying the same thing to us. Listen, there are all kinds of things, radio and television and magazine and uh, the shop talk. All of this is designed to take you away from your purity and simplicity in your devotion to Christ. Don't believe it. It's really just a puffed up fleshly knowledge. It is the mind of the flesh. One writer says, They were boasting of their acquaintance with divine fullness, being full of knowledge, when all they were full of is their own pride. They were just full of their own pride. They were just spinning out all kinds of weird ideas and philosophies of the day. They were commingling all kinds of, of principles together and saying, Hey, this stuff works. Man, I had a tremendous experience. I was catapulted into the heavenly. Man, this is great. You might even have someone say today, man, I was depriving my body and then I took maybe even a few drugs along the way and I got so whipped up into a frenzy that, man, I had an experience. I was out of my body. I was at some location and, man, it was ecstasy par excellence. I don't, I don't even know where I was, but I'll tell you what, it was a tremendous experience. And if you really want a similar experience, if you really want to be close to God, you, you can worship that Christ of yours, but I'll tell you what, you need Christ plus this other experience, and then you'll be really on your way. And that is exactly the kind of notions that we have today. I love the way the NIV puts it here. When Paul comes down on them with his answer, he says, his unspiritual mind, this error, this error-prone teacher, his unspiritual mind puffed him up with idle notions. I mean, Paul just always just cuts right to the quick. He just cuts right to the issue, right to the heart. He says, they have all of these experiences, and I'll tell you what, it is nothing but a puffing up of pride. It is really the cycling through of their own fleshly mind. You say, well, you've referred to a couple of examples that we might have today, but be a little bit more specific, all right? You ask for it, I will. We have all kinds of things, because there could be some people in our congregation this morning saying, yeah, but, you know, this is really not a one-to-one. -one. I mean, we really don't involve ourselves in those things. I don't really see those things out in my world. Oh, really? Christians and non-Christians, or religionists to any degree, worshiping whatever god of their own illusion, they believe they have some sort of relationship to the divine. Just talk with people. Just ask anyone around you, uh, do you have some sort of relationship with God? And then just stop with that question and then allow them to answer it. And you will have incredible answers to that question. Well, my perception of God is, or my experience with God has been, and then get ready. Because there are all kinds of answers out there. A mishmash of all kinds of theories and principles and postulations. Here are just a few that I just wrote down from my mind that I just thought of just at the top of my, my head just to try to come up with some things that you could relate to that's out there these days, both within the church and outside the church, tragically. There are those who believe that they have actually died, gone to heaven, and come back to life. 
and are now writing books and telling experiences. Dr. Richard Eby is one of them, a medical doctor who believed he died, went to heaven, and came back, and he's now on the circuit telling everybody about his experience. Vision, healing, miracles, ecstatic experiences, prophecy, angelic visitation, altered states of consciousness, angel contact, astrology, channeling, crystal, divination, witchcraft, occult games, dousing someone with water, dream, Eastern mysticism, enlightenment techniques, S, New Age shamanism, hypnosis, acupuncture, mantras, the martial arts, Zen meditation, muscle testing, New Age medicine, Scientology, silver mind control, visualization, yoga, and it goes on and on and on. I mean, that's probably just a list of about 15 things. There are probably a thousand or two thousand others by name that have a specific structure to their thinking, that have a specific uh, definition to what they believe, and all designed somehow and in some way to have somebody find fulfillment or a relationship with God or whatever their conception of God is in this life. Those are modern day examples. They're all around us. And what Paul is saying is, by warning, don't allow anyone to condemn you for your stand on the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. If you stand for Christ, and if you stand for the word of Christ, allow everyone around you to know that you will not compromise on the person of Christ. You will stand on Christ and Christ alone, and you will stand on the word of God and the word of God alone, and it will not be related to any Christ plus experience. No visions, no angelic visitations, no revelation. The revelation of God is complete, and it is complete and found in His Word and His Word alone. The canon of Scripture, the 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament, the canon is closed, God's Word is for us revealed, and there is no longer a word from God until Jesus Christ Himself appears in the sky, and when He comes, He will come as the Word of God. That's all we need. Christians don't need to fuss around with all of these other things. And not only must you not fuss around with it, you must discerningly be aware of it, and especially in the context of other Christians or professing Christians or even just people in the world telling you you need these things in order for you to have a relationship with God. They may even say, oh, you can worship Christ, but you also need this. And you say it's not so. In fact, try this one on. Next time someone comes to you or next time you read something or hear something, you say to that person or whatever it is you're thinking, oh, I know what that is. That is a, an inflation caused by that person's fleshly mind. Why? Because that's exactly what Paul does. That's what he says. He says, if it is somebody who comes to you and says you have to do something to your body or you have to worship in this way or you have to take a stand on a vision you've seen, you are inflated without cause by your fleshly mind. That's what he says. That's Paul's word. That's, that's his word to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, given to us for help, for guidance. That's the answer. And I love when he gives us, in verse 19, this phrase, not holding fast to the head. The opposite is true. If you are standing on the sufficiency of Christ, you are holding fast to the head. You're holding fast to Christ. You know what that phrase means? It means to forcibly, physically grasp a hold of something. And Paul borrows that from the physical dimension and says if you really want to serve Christ in the way that he dictates, you ought to hold fast to him, only him. Don't let anything else interrupt your devotion to Christ, but Christ alone and His Word. And certainly don't let anyone condemn you on the basis of their unbiblical experience and why you haven't received it. You need to hold fast. I told you last Lord's Day a verse, and we didn't really go into it in any detail, but I want to do that this morning. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, because it is so important for us to understand this principle. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Peter says, Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. Everything that we need, Peter says, for life and godliness is through the true knowledge of him. The true knowledge of Christ. 
And where do we receive that knowledge? Verse 4, For by these, these excellent things, these knowledgeable things of Christ, He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. What he's saying is, you want to escape the corruption that is in the world by lust? Hold on to the wonderful and mighty and magnificent promises of Jesus Christ. And the only way that that is found is through the true knowledge of Him, and the only place that that is found is the Word of God. The Word of God is so central, it is so preeminent in our life, that we must take our stand, not on visions we have seen, but on the stand of the Word of God. Hold fast seize it, Paul says. That's the answer. I'm going to warn you, and you better not allow anybody to condemn you in this way, and you better hold fast, seize the Word of God. Hold fast to the head of the church, Jesus Christ. Jude was telling his readers virtually the same thing. He says, Jude 3, Beloved, I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. What he was saying was, I wanted to write to you about the great doctrine of salvation. But something came up. Something happened. I became aware of some false teachers, some errorists. And he says, I was making an effort to write to you, but I felt the necessity to write to you to appeal that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. You say, what does that mean? That's talking about Scripture. When it says that you contend earnestly for the faith, whenever the word faith is listed there with the article, the faith, it is referring to the specific content of Scripture. It's not really talking about the subjective belief that I have in Christ, although that's part of the faith. When it says the faith, it's talking about a body of doctrine, and it's, of course, talking about the word of truth. And he says, I am appealing to you, because of these false teachers around you, that you contend earnestly, that you fight for the faith, for the word, which was all, once for all, delivered down to you as saints. And you say, how do you know that's in the context of false teachers? He says in verse 4, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Now, do you see the subtlety there? They're in, and we don't even know it unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, that's speaking of God's wonderful sovereignty and their future, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. You see what they do with the truth? They turn it. They twist it. Twist it into licentiousness. That means bad action. Evil action and they deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. And then notice what he says in verse 17. But you, beloved, you ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though they were saying to you in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts, the false teachers and their motives will be found out, and you ought to remember what the apostles taught you and you ought to reckon their teaching as practical for right now. He says, these are the ones, these false teachers, who cause divisions, worldly-minded. Isn't that exactly what Paul says here in Colossians 2? They're living in the world. They're worldly-minded. They're trying to detract you from the sufficiency of Christ. But what you ought to do is build yourself, verse 20, up on your most holy faith. You're believing in Christ. There it's subjective. You ought to build yourself up on your belief system and you ought to pray always in accordance with the Holy Spirit. Praying always with His will. Praying in accordance with His character. And so what you could really do is overlay Jude's words right onto Colossians 2. It's saying the same thing. You cannot condemn others for their purity and simplicity and devotion to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ alone, but you will certainly have others who will come to you to do that very thing. I love what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15 about holding fast. He says, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold, hold fast, 
forcibly take hold of the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's saying, hold fast to the Word of God. We taught you the Word. We didn't tell you about visions we have seen. We didn't tell you about worshiping along with the angels in the presence of God. We didn't tell you about all of these things. We didn't tell you about self-abasement. We didn't tell you to treat your body severely. In fact, Paul said, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Take care of your body. Realize that your body has an action which is directly related to your relationship to Jesus Christ. If you add your body to that of a harlot, you're joining Christ to that harlot. 1 Corinthians 6. See, it's opposite of what Paul is teaching them. Remember the church of Pergamum in Revelation 2, part of the churches of Asia Minor? He says to Pergamum, I am going to commend you, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to commend you because you hold fast my name. Oh, I love that. He had some things he wanted to tell them that were not so good, but one of the good things he told them was, you're holding fast. You're holding fast. Why? Because God is the ultimate source of all life and unity. That's why Paul says that you, as a church congregation, are being held together by the joints and ligaments, speaking of the analogy of a body, but it grows with a growth which is from God. God is always the source. He's going to supply the answer to all of your needs, and He supplied it in full and toto in the Word. That's all you need. I love the way Peter T. O'Brien, one of the commentators of the Colossian letter, says it. He says, the application to the Colossian situation is plain. The false teacher who does not depend on the head has no contact with the source of life and nourishment and does not belong to the body. The community must realize that they must remain in living union with Christ as the head. Let them not be drawn off or enticed away by the appeal of the false teachers to their heavenly experiences. End quote. He's saying, don't be dissuaded. And then Paul says there's a third principle, a third way for you to break the bondage of legalism. Verse 20, the warning. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why? Why? You can almost hear in Paul's voice, why? Why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees? Here's the warning. Do not submit to man-made decrees for the purpose of gaining wisdom or for the purpose of resisting sin in your life. That's the principle. That's the principle that comes out of Paul's warning here. The first is, don't judge others and resist the judgment of others unless God's Word tells you to do so. The second is that you ought to not allow anybody to condemn you based upon their unbiblical experiences. And thirdly, don't submit to any man-made religious decrees for the purpose of gaining a knowledge of God or resisting sin in your life. He says you don't have to do that. He's already told them in several places in Colossians itself that they have Christ as their head. They've died with Christ. All the fullness of Christ is theirs. He's the head over all rule and authority. Verse 10, in Him they were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. They've been buried with Him in baptism. They are raised with Him through faith and the working of God. They were dead in their transgressions, but He made them alive together. He's forgiven them all of their transgressions. He's canceled out the certificate of debt, of decrees against them. They were hostile to Him. He brought them Christ. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Why should you go back to bondage? Almost like the children of Israel. I've given you manna. I've given you food. I've given you all the nourishment that you would need, both physical and spiritual. Why would you want to go back to Egypt? Why would you want to go back to bondage? You must not continue to live under the yoke of man-made decrees. Paul is a pastor saying it's going to hurt you. It's going to damage you spiritually. It's not going to give you the ultimate, the optimum. It's going to give you the reverse. It's going to diminish the person of Christ in your life. He's saying, if for the sake, and he says, I assume that the argument is true, if for the sake of the argument I assume you to have died with Christ, you're still living in the bondage of having been bound to the ABCs of the wisdom of the world. You're following these intermediaries. You're following these angels, these principalities and their powers when Christ is the ruler over them. Why would you follow them when He's the head? And then He says, why? With a rhetorical question. Why? 
How could you? He's almost saying. If you still live in a worldly way and voluntarily place yourself back under the rituals and regulations of men when Christ is here, the shadow has been displaced by the substance, the very person of Jesus Christ Himself, and I'm presenting Him to you, and why would you try to add anything to the fullness of Christ? Boy, almost seems like in our own day we need to say that same message. Why would anyone who would profess that they know Jesus Christ would profess that He has died for their sins and that He has been raised and they as well to walk in newness of life would be willing to go back to bondage in Egypt? Listen, folks, there are a lot of people who are going to come to you and do exactly what the examples are in verses 21 to 23. Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. Boy, if you really want to be right with God, or if you really want to be pleasing to God, or if you really want to have fulfillment in life, or if you really want to have a fit, physically fit body, then you have to do this, you have to stay away from this. And you say, well, but those things aren't really connected because a lot of those people who are on the television, they're doing all the physical fitness and the exercise, they're not doing it for their worship of God. No, they're doing it because they're worshiping themselves. That's what they're doing. They're worshiping their bodies. And that's as much as a religion as the worship of God. And they're saying by that, I am totally sufficient in and of myself if my body looks good. I'll be looking good for other people. I'll be pleasing to other people. And hopefully when I stand before God, He's going to say to me, my, you look really good. You look marvelous. You know what Paul says? All... These things are destined to perish with use. They're not going to last. There's going to be a day coming when there's going to be no reason to say, do not touch, do not taste, don't even eat. He says, why would someone try to bring about spiritual eternal ends with those things that are going to be tied to this life alone? That's his logic. And it's in the... And it's in accord with the commandments and teachings of men. It's human wisdom. Don't listen to anybody that says, don't eat this, do eat this, don't drink that, do drink that. It's human opinion. And it has nothing to do with your relationship to Christ. If it did, God would give us an entire package, an entire set of ingredients about what we should do in those areas, and He has not. Anything that these errors were saying, whether it was food or drink, we don't know exactly if the do not touch, do not taste, do not eat was referring to food and drink. It probably was, but it could have included a whole lot of other things. And by their very involvement in it, it would bring them closer to God. Paul says, no, I completely reject that. And you must also. And believe me, these people are fastidious with the rules and the regulations. Some of them are incredible. I mean, they stick to the letter of the thing. They won't deviate it from one iota. It's tradition. It's rote. I'm reminded of God's word through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 29, 13. Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near to me with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. It's just tradition. It may even be religious tradition. But if it's not done from the heart, it makes no one closer to God. You've died with Christ, and yet you're willing to receive your marching orders from men. Don't trust in consumable things, beloved. Don't trust in them. They're going to be consumed. Trust in Christ, the eternal God-man. In fact, that's Paul's answer. Look at verse 23. These are matters which have to be sure, in theory, what it looks like on the outside. They have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, and he's just repeating it again. But here's the answer, are of no value against fleshly indulgence. No value. No value whatsoever. Let me give you another principle. 
It's not a part of our three, but it's a subset under this third one, and it is this. False systems, false systems of spirituality can never restrain nor satisfy a man's desires. You ought to mark that down, you ought to write that down, and you ought to live by it. False systems of spirituality never restrain nor ultimately satisfy the desires of the human heart. You say, what do I mean? Well, all of those things I mentioned a moment ago and thousands more. All of the things that people live by as a credo for their life. All of the things that they're putting all of their hope and trust in. Those things will never ultimately restrain them from doing evil and they will never ultimately bring the satisfaction that only Christ can bring. I'll give you an example. Recently, I saw one of those news investigation uh, reporting shows, like 2020 or Primetime or something like that, and they were reporting on the whereabouts and the, the dealings of Jimmy Swagger. Some of you may have seen that on television. And they reported that from the time that he was first caught with that prostitute out in California, he's been caught two other times. So that's three times now he's been caught publicly doing something he shouldn't be doing. And yet he's one of the men who, if you watched him on the other channel where he's preaching, is talking about visions he has seen, talking about experiences, talking about revelations, talking about all kinds of things which obviously don't restrain his flesh. They don't. If they did, he wouldn't be doing that stuff. You say, yeah, that's Jimmy Swagger. But you know, what about us? What about us? We may not be the... Swaggered the braggart kind of people, but we may be those who are involved in internet pornography. We may be those people that are looking at things we shouldn't be looking at. You know, last week I talked about movies, and I didn't say what I now want to say, and that is, yes, you might have the freedom to go to a movie, but let me ask you a question. Does that movie glorify Jesus Christ? Does that movie speak of eternal verities of the faith? Does it speak of the truth of Jesus Christ? Does it uplift Him? Or does it glorify sin? Does it speak of sin as though it were a virtue, not a vice? Does it speak of those things for which you know if Jesus Christ were sitting there with you, He would, bla he would blast that screen to the pit of hell? That's what He'd do. Because that does not glorify Him. That may not be that every single movie that comes out is like that, but I dare say that the vast majority of them are. Because they glorify sin. They don't glorify Christ. What about drinking? There are some of us that we would say, I'd never be involved in astrology. I'd never be involved in silver mind control. I'd never be involved in S. I would never be involved in those things. But I have drinks. And oh, there may be an occasional time where I cross the line between drunkenness and just a casual drinking. But and let's ask ourselves this question. Is that glorifying Christ? Does that speak of the glory of Christ? Does that speak of my brother or sister who sees me as a testimony for Christ? What about some other activities? What about the exercise? Do you spend more time in exercise of your physical body than you do in the spiritual nourishment you know you need to receive from the Word of God? You see, these are the contemporary issues for which if Paul were here, he would speak to. And that's why I'm speaking to them. Because if you have any of those things, whether you design it to or not, they're replacing your devotion to Jesus Christ and the sufficiency of His name. It's wrong. Give it up. Don't do it. Magazines that you shouldn't be looking at. Television programs you should not be watching. Radio you should not be listening to. The computer for which so many wonderful things have come, but so many evil things are also lurking. You see, if you follow Paul's words, you will draw closer to God through His divine revelation, His word, not your own. And you will avoid fleshly indulgence. And you'll be satisfied with the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. I want you to bow your heads. And as you do, I want you to ask yourself whether or not you have broken the bondage of legalism by trusting in Christ? Have you given Christ your life such as it is and received His perfection? 
his life of beauty and holiness. If you have given your life to Christ, do you tend to judge others by what they do, but you couldn't find any explicit statements in God's Word to do so? Do you allow others to condemn your spirituality based on some unbiblical experiences they have and you know you really need to speak to what they're saying because you know it is not biblical and yet you're fearful of saying anything. You don't want to quote-unquote rock the boat. But you know that they need to hear a word from the Lord, the Word of God, and you need to share that with them and say, I'm not so sure about that experience. Let's go to God's Word and find out. That, of course, means that you're going to have to know the Word, which means that you're going to have to study it, which means you're going to have to say no to other items in your life, items that you know ultimately will never last. Maybe it's food, maybe it's drink, maybe it's exercise, maybe it's movies, maybe it's smoking, maybe it's drinking, whatever it is that is detracting you in your conscience from knowing Jesus Christ in a more intimate way, are you willing to give it up? And will you resist the submission of your life to man-made decrees for the purpose of resisting sin or gaining God's knowledge when the knowledge of God's Word is right in front of you? Lord, I ask this morning that you would continue to challenge our people, myself, with this very practical word from Paul. It's so easy for us to get caught up in the wisdom of the world be so tainted in our thinking by worldly wisdom and not by your truth, either because we're not reading your word to protect ourselves from the world, or we're reading your word, but we're involved in sinful practices at the same time. Lord, thank you for giving us some clear guidance on breaking the bondage of legalism. As we move into the very practical, ethical section of chapters 3 and 4, May you use this as a launching pad for all of us to confess our sins, to ask for accountability, to seek for the purity and simplicity of devotion to Christ so that we might then apply these ethical truths that come. Thank you for these things and for the grace you give us to live in the way you desire. In his name, amen.